Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. It's on page 1156 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Boy, the music was great this morning, by the way, praise team. I really was blessed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Lord, as we come to Your Word this morning, we pray that You might illumine our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that You would give to us the same thing for which Paul prayed, this illumination that only Your Spirit can give. God, I pray that each of us would hear from You through Your Word now. We come to You expectantly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I, I really love movies that lead you down a primrose path, and then near the end of the movie, they turn the tables on you and surprise you. And suddenly, at the very end of the movie, you find out that the good guy was actually the bad guy, and the whole thing is, is reversed. And you say, oh my goodness, oh, that's what was going on the whole time. I love movies that can catch me like that and, and surprise me. I think one of the uh, directors who's really good at that today is uh, M. Night Shyamalan. I really enjoy his movies. Maybe you've seen some of them. Signs was one that came out. You've got to see Signs. You've got to take an unbeliever with you when you go see Signs because it's a great conversation piece, a conversation starter. But uh, another one he did was Unbreakable. Critics kind of panned it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's kind of a comic book sort of theme. But in both these movies, there's this twist at the end, and you go, oh, I understand now. Now, of course, his great movie was Sixth Sense. Uh, that, that was the classic movie that he did, and it was an eminently spooky movie, uh, I had the willies for about two weeks after watching that movie, uh, and so I regret that. But, um, you know, that movie just has such a great twist at the end. When you find out that Bruce Willis is actually a ghost himself, you know, it's like, I can't believe it! And so you start rethinking the whole movie. I assume you've already seen it, and, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah. But, but when you find that out, it's so cool. Because <laughs> then what you do is you replay the whole movie in your head, and you go, okay, so when he was doing that, it was really this, and oh, oh you know, and it's just, it's a great sort of twist, and he actually caught me. Usually I, I can, you know, figure these things out, but he totally caught me, and I just loved being caught like that. That, that moment of, oh, aha, is such a wonderful moment in, in a story. And that is what Paul is praying about as we read our text this morning, he's praying that we would have this big, aha, oh, 
you know, an epiphanic moment in which we, the lights come on and, and everything becomes clear, everything falls into place, it all makes sense. Uh, if you look at verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So he's praying for an enlightenment, an illumination, that, that the lights would click on for these people, that they would suddenly say, aha, you know, he's been preaching about who we are in Christ in verses 3 to 14. We've been studying that for the last two months. And now that he's done preaching, he starts to pray. He says, okay, I told you all about who you are in Jesus, but you know, that's not enough. God, you have to open the eyes of our hearts. And that's kind of a funny phrase. We see that in verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart, it's kind of a, you know, the eyes of my heart. My four-year-old son is very literal, would struggle with that phrase. Uh, you know, what does that mean? Well, the heart, of course, in biblical thought is uh, the, the center of the... Just a little insert in your bulletin. And there's a quote at the top by James Dunn. He says, The heart is the integrating center of man as a rational, emotional, volitional being. It's the whole person summed up by the heart. So what Paul's praying for is that there would be an understanding at the deepest level of the person that it would include mental understanding, it would include emotional understanding, that it would include the volition. In other words, it would change the way I behave and live my life. So he's praying for us to really know it at the depths of our person. And he says, God, enlighten the eyes of their heart so that they would know. Now that assumes, of course, that we, our eyes are darkened. It assumes, of course, that, that we can't understand what God has for us, that we all of us need some kind of enlightening, that the light has to come on for us. So why is it that we can't understand? What is it that's blocking or darkening or veiling our understanding of the things that God wants to say? And uh, the answer, of course, is sin. Sin is, well, it's the problem. It's the problem behind the problems. Uh, all of us are sinners. Every single one of us, regardless of who we are, we're sinners before God. And one of the deleterious effects that sin has upon us is that it darkens our understanding. So instead of being able to comprehend the things of God, I, I, I just don't get it. There, there's a, uh, a veiling of my understanding. Now, what does that mean specifically? What does that look like? Well, look at your sermon notes again. I, I quoted a passage from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is a critical passage for understanding the effects of sin on humanity. And I quoted it at length, and I just want to read through it because it's so important. There it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and statues. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. That's what sin does. It's not that sin lowers your IQ. 
Okay, it's not that sin makes you stupid or, if, or you know, if you become a Christian, you're smarter than other people. There are some brilliant people in this world who do not name the name of Christ. So, so it's not that, that sin lowers your intelligence quotient. It's not that it changes how much mental horsepower you have to drive around with. What it does, though, is that it makes us believe in lies. It, we become sort of captive to lies so that all of that mental horsepower is now harnessed in the direction of wanting to sin, wanting to turn away from God, and it becomes ensnared in sin so that we, we think that up is down and down is up. We think that right is wrong and wrong is right. We think that the creation is actually the creator. We think the creation is God. Um, you know, this is December, and in a couple of weeks is going to be the winter solstice, so the shortest day of the year. And on that day, people in America, no, people in Boston, sophisticated, educated Boston, are going to get together on the winter solstice and worship nature. People are going to do that. I mean, how far have we come? Not that far. This is no different than what the pagans were doing thousands of years ago. People are still wor they're worshiping Mother Earth, and they think it's a god. They think there's some divine life in this creation. But we haven't come anywhere. We're the same place we were way back in Romans chapter 1, where we think that the creation is actually God. This is just this, this is foolish thinking. But this is the effect of sin, is that intelligent, well-educated, sophisticated people just think that truth is error, and, and they think error is truth, and they have it all backwards. And this is the effect that sin has on me as well. I found this amazing quote by Aldous Huxley. If you look on the second page of the notes there in the box, I mean, I couldn't believe it. He just says it. You know, Aldous Huxley, he wrote Brave New World, which is a great book. He was an intellectual, a writer, and an atheist. And here's what Aldous Huxley said. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, both sexual and political. Because he just says it. He says, yeah, yeah, you know, what I really wanted was to do what I want. And so this philosophy worked to give me a framework for doing what I wanted. So of course I, I chose it. I mean, that's minds are ensnared and captured by the power of evil. And we give ourselves over. That's what it means to have a darkened understanding. And we all have that. We all cannot see God's will and God's purposes. There's a quote at the top of the sermon notes on page 2. This one is so important. The God of this age, referring to Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The bottom line is that we can't even see the glory of Christ. So that you go out, you tell someone about Jesus, you share your faith with Jesus, and it's not just that the person you're talking to doesn't want to put their faith in Christ. This is important. They can't do it. They don't want to, and they can't. We're going to try to invite lots of people here on Christmas Eve, but we do it realizing that they can't hear the message we're about to speak to them. They are unable to because sin has blinded their minds. So it's kind of a hopeless task in some ways, unless God intervenes. And so we come to, back to our text. Verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. How does this happen? Well, it's back in verse 17. 
I keep asking that the God of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit there, of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. God has to counteract, counteract the effects that sin has had on our understanding. God has to lift the veil. So to really know God, we need two things. We need the truth to be spoken, but then I also need a corresponding enlightenment inside my own heart so that I can respond to the truth. Because if we just speak the bare truth, nothing will happen. It's not that there's anything wrong with truth. It's that the hearers are darkened. And so this, the word has to come with the spirit. There has to be a speaking of truth and a corresponding illumination by God's spirit so that people can respond and have saving faith in Christ. Because if there's no move by the spirit, then it's just speaking the truth and we're not going to have any response. God has to do that internal work inside of a person. Uh, this internal enlightenment happens at conversion. When you first become a Christian is when the lights first turn on. Bink. And, ah, oh, you know, you have the, the M. Night Shyamalan moment. Oh, my goodness. You mean I was doing that all these years? And when I went, oh, ugh, you know, and it just all comes alive. And, and life, it's as if you go from to become a Christian. I remember, uh, I think I've told this story once before, but um, if I did, you know, you just have to suffer through it. But uh, there's, there's a guy in our church, he's actually deceased now, but he's a member of this body for, for decades. His name was Bob McDonald. And I really love Bob. He was just a, a big old raw bones Swedish guy. Grew up in Quincy. He grew up working on the docks. He was uh, a hard swearing, hard drinking, fighting kind of guy. Just a tough guy. And then his wife, uh, Edie, became a Christian and started coming to this church. And so they, the church targeted him with prayer. They started praying for him and, and trying to witness to him and invite him to church. And he had nothing to do with it. Uh, so the pastor, this pastor at the time had a gift for evangelism, and he kept coming over to the house and trying to find Bob. And Bob would try to sneak out of it and get away from it. I, there's the famous story is that Bob was in the bathroom one time, heard the pastor knocking at the door, and so he opened the window, jumped out the window, and hid in the woods because he did not want to talk to the pastor. Well, eventually the pastor cornered him, and, and I guess this is how Bob tells the story, or told the story. Bob says the pastor opened up his Bible and found a verse, and gave the Bible to Bob, and he pointed to the verse. He said, Bob, I want you to read that verse. And Bob read it. He goes, Bob, what does that verse mean to you? Bob said, nothing. All right, Bob, I want you to read it again. So Bob read it again. What does that mean to you, Bob? Nothing. All right, Bob, I want you to read it again. And the third time, Bob says, I read it again, and he says, in that moment, I was saved. The same verse he had read two times before, all of a sudden, what was the difference? God went, flicked on the light through the Holy Spirit, and he says, I was just saved. I became a believer at that very moment. He said, Until it, before I came to Jesus, I never cried. After I came to Jesus, I never stopped crying, he told me. This big, you know, this big tough <laughs> dock worker kind of guy. Just his life was changed. Why? Because God in his power illuminated his heart so that he could understand and this is the hope that we have as we share the gospel, not that we can be eloquent or interesting or convincing or persuasive, but when you tell people about Jesus, you just have to be on your knees, so to speak, at the same time saying, God, open the eyes of their heart, because it's only if you do an opening work, an illuminating work, that the person will see. This illuminating work of the Holy Spirit continues on through life, though, as a Christian. Remember, if we look back at our text, Paul is not writing to a bunch of skeptics. He's writing to believers. In verse 15, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus 
and your love for all the saints. So they have faith and love. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So he's talking to people who have a renowned faith and love, and he's praying that God will deepen that faith and love by illuminating them further. So I guess the way I kind of think of it is, when you become a Christian, the light switch is on, and the lights come on, but there's also a big dimmer switch. And so slowly throughout the Christian life, that dimmer switch you know, just slides up as God, through time, brings the lights up. And, and so the Christian life is one of continuing experiences of, of God making things clear to us. Uh, maybe you've had this experience where you've been reading the Bible, you've read some passage that you read who knows how many times, you're reading through it for the 52nd time, and suddenly, wow, you know, it just comes alive. And, and you're so convicted, you're like, wow. And God spoke this to me right at this moment in my life. I'll tell you, when that happens, you've got to stop reading right there and start praying. But when that happens, this is what I do. You know, and sometimes uh, you know, I'll be reading along and something will just jump out. And I'll, so what I do is I just stop my reading. I don't just keep plowing on. I just pray about that. I'm like, I try to soak it in. And, and, and if, if that's all I do for my devotional time that day is just soak in that one verse that jumped out at me, that's fine. And what I find happens is a lot of times... God will bring a verse to light like that. And then two weeks later, a situation will come up where I really need that truth. And then I'll, I'll come to some difficult situation and that verse will just perfectly apply. And I'll say, now I see, Lord, why you're bringing this to my mind. You know, God does those kind of things. He orchestrates all of these things. And so, you know, pray as you read his word, not just, all right, I got to read the word this morning. But before you begin, God, open my eyes. I want to hear what you have to say to me. Illumine me so that I can understand what your word has to say. I talked to a woman uh, near the beginning of the Ephesians series. She came up after a service and said, Oh, I'm so excited. We're studying Ephesians. I was just in a Bible study. We went through Ephesians. And she told me about an experience she had where she took Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, and wherever she found a, a pronoun, we or you, she put in her own name. And so I'll sort of do it for myself. Look at verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed Jeremy in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose Jeremy in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined Jeremy to be adopted as his son, through Jesus Christ, and on and on. She read the whole passage. It's something you should do. Read, read through it and put your own name in there. And she said, as I did that, it's about you in Christ. I'll tell you, it's overwhelming. We all know that if we're in Christ, we're the children of God, but do I really know that I'm a child of God? Like, how deep has that truth sunk into the, the fabric of my, my being and my outlook on life? Because if I would really grasp God's great love for me, it would transform the way that I live. And so we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit, not just at conversion when the light switch goes on, but also that dimmer switch has to keep coming up throughout our Christian life. God has to keep bringing things more and more to light as the truths that we know become more real and become more lived out in our experience. Look specifically at what Paul prays for. Moving quickly here. Verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So three things that Paul prays for specifically. If you want to look on page three of the sermon notes, if you want to take notes, one, two, and three. First thing Paul prays that we would understand better is hope. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called us. God has called us to hope. The Christian faith is a faith of hope. Before, uh, well, I used to do more mountain biking. I used to love mountain biking. Then something happened. Um, my wife and I started reproducing ourselves, and now we can't do anything like that. Um, I can't really do anything, actually. <laughs> we stay at home a lot. But well, I used to mountain bike, and it was really fun. And uh, I, I remember uh, th this one time I was riding in a trail in the woods, and, and my wife was there, and I think our friend, we had a friend with us, and the three of us were sort of cruising in the woods over in Wampatuck. And then the trail kind of getting thinner, started getting thinner and thinner and more sparse. And then we came to a, one of those old walls that are, were randomly placed here by aliens in New England. I don't know how they, they're just in the middle of the woods, these old stone walls. And so I, you know, we picked up our bikes and we hiked over the wall and we're looking around for the trail and started going into the woods. The next thing you know, we're just lost in the woods. And there's just three of us walking around the woods of Wampatuck, you know, looking for something. And, and you know, that's, that's how life happens sometimes. You're, you're on a path, you know where it's going, things seem so clear, then it gets a little thinner. And next thing you know, you're just like, you know, how do, I don't want to go back because that would just take so long. And we have plans, we have dreams, we, we have friends in the woods, you know, looking around. And you're like, what happened? It just kind of went, and that was it. And now I don't know what's going on. Why did God bring me to this place? What happened to the plans that I had, God? And, it's, and so we get lost. And that's when I, I come back to this verse. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Our God is a God of hope. There are no dead ends in God's plan for you. There's deserts, there's wildernesses, but he brings us into those sort of murky places so that we'll stop looking around for a trail when we'll start looking up and we'll say, all right, God, what do you have for me? God brings us into those wildernesses to teach us to hope in him alone so that my hope is fully in Christ. I think that's why he strips things away from Christians, not because he's trying to punish us. He loves us. He's trying to get us to trust in Him alone, that He would be our all in all, like all these you know, songs we were just singing about, you're the air I breathe. I mean, God wants you to really experience that. And, and so sometimes He has to bring us to places of lostness where everything falls apart and all we have is Him. And, and so He brings us there and, and He wants us to learn that hope. There is hope in Christ. No matter how lost or broken you feel like the trail is, there is hope in Christ Put your hope in Him. That's why He's brought you to this place in your, in your own life, in your own story. And the hope ultimately is eternal life. The hope we have is that someday, no matter what this life has brought us, we will receive the crown. That's the hope in the New Testament. It's the return of Christ. All right, we've got to move on. There's the hope. We could talk about that. Whew, that's a whole sermon. Number two is a whole sermon. <laughs> you, know, you see how hard it is to preach through Ephesians. I mean, each one of these is like, a sermon series. Oh, boy, that's a seven-week series right there. Uh, number two, he says, I not only pray that, that you'll know hope to which he has called you, but number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, when I first read that, actually the first several times I read that, I thought, oh, that's cool. That, that's our inheritance that we have in heaven. And, and then I thought, okay, so Paul's repeating himself. So he talked about the hope we have in Christ, which is ultimately eternal life, 
And now he's talking about the inheritance that we have, which is eternal life. So I thought, okay, Paul's saying the same thing, just with different images. But then I, I, I read it again, and then a commentator said something, and it start, you know, again, I had an aha experience. The light really came on for me. Paul's not talking about our inheritance. He's talking about God's inheritance. Check it out. The riches of whose? His glorious inheritance. So Paul wants us to know that God has a great inheritance for himself. God, Paul wants us to know what God's inheritance is for himself. What is God's inheritance? What does God get? His glorious inheritance in the saints. We, you, if you are in Christ, are what God is taking for himself. You are what he is treasuring and, and possessing and loving and holding close to his heart. You are the inheritance that God receives, which is amazing because I know who I am. <laughs> I know I don't deserve that kind of status. I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have done and said and thought despicable things in my life. I know that I, I don't be belong to, uh, deserve to be a sanctuary for God's Spirit as we sang about earlier. I, I don't deserve any of those things. But that in grace and mercy and through the blood of Christ, God has made me His beloved child? It's staggering. And I just don't get it. And so Paul is praying for me, and I'm praying for myself, and I hope you're praying for me, and I'm praying for you. Lord, help us to realize who we are in Christ. Help us to realize, God, that you are totally pleased with us. Not because of what we've done, but because we are in Christ. That God views me as his beloved child. That's a truth that I am still working on. I, I wish God would just crank the dimmer switch up on that, because I feel like I haven't gotten that one yet. And then number three, moving on here. Verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. God, Paul wants us to know the hope, the status that we have, and number three, the incomparably great power for us who believe. Christianity is a religion of power. It is a power faith. It is not an empty, mamby-pamby morality. It is not a bunch of outdated rituals. Christianity is a power religion. It is the power of God at work in the lives of sinners. You first experience that power when you become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is an experience of supernatural power. In fact, the greatest miracle you will ever experience in this life is your conversion. God will do other great things in your life, but the greatest miracle you've experienced is that moment when Christ wrenched you out of the power of darkness and out of the kingdom of Satan and put you into the kingdom of light and made you his beloved child. I mean, that was just raw, unadulterated power that did that. And that same power that saved us is at work in our lives because notice what Paul says. His incomparably great power for us who believe. There's power in Christ. Power to do whatever I want? No, of course not. It's power to follow Christ. There is power to live a holy life. You don't have to be trapped in sin. There is power to break the addictions that bind you through Christ. There is power to overcome despair and, and, and the sense of fear that you have. God has power for us that we can tap into. And look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, finally... Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty 
power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And uh, verse 13, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that you, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. You can stand your ground against sin. You don't have to be trapped in sin. You don't have to be trapped in the devil's lies. You can stand. There's power in God that you can draw upon. You know, uh, Two Towers is coming out soon, which is the second installment of the Lord of the Rings movie. And uh, I've had my tickets now for a week. And I'm very excited um, about this movie. You know, and I also just got the extended version of the first movie, which has 30 extra minutes of footage that was left out. Oh, and I've seen it a couple times now. It's so good. Um, but one of my favorite scenes in that movie, if you've seen Lord of the Rings or if you've read the books, is when they're in the mines of Moria and they're, they're running over the bridge of Khazad-dum and the Balrog, the, the demon, you know, comes out. And, and everyone's running except Gandalf. And Gandalf just takes his stand on the bridge. And he just stands there to face that demon. And, and he says this one line. He says, I am the keeper of the secret fire of Arnon. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I, I just read a Wall Street Journal article. Uh, because, I don't know, in the Friday edition of the Wall Street Journal, there's a little article near the back called Houses of Worship, which is just something about spirituality or faith or Christianity or whatever. And they're talking about Tolkien, and they said that line Tolkien said is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, the whole you know, Lord of the Rings is just like imbued with Christian. If you don't understand Christianity, Lord of the Rings is going to go... You know, because it's all just a Christian worldview. And, and so here's Gandalf saying, I am a keeper. I have the Holy Spirit, basically, is the imagery. And he stands there and he raises up his sword and this white light surrounds him and, and the Balrog brings out his like, huge fire sword and just goes, crunk. And, and, you know, Gandalf just stands his ground. And I just love that picture. Like, that's the Christian life. Too often we see the Balrog and we're like, ah, <laughs> Whatever, you know, okay, I'll do whatever you say, world. I'll, I give. No, man. You know, I am a keeper of the secret fire of Arnon. Stand your ground. <laughs> Stand your ground. There's power. In, go rent that movie, watch that, and read Ephesians. You know, it's... <laughs> okay. Stand your ground. We, can, we have power in Christ to resist temptation and sin and wickedness. There's power in Christ. We don't have to go along with our own sinful desires or the temptation of this world because there's a power greater in us than the power of this world. We just have to tap into it. Paul's not saying, I pray that you'll get that power. He's saying, I pray that you'll know you have the power and that you'll use it to resist God, the power of godliness. <clears throat> so let's sum up here. Paul prays. He's preached to them. He's told them all about who they are in Christ, but now he prays. He says, God, enlighten their eyes. Let them see the hope, the status, and the power that they have in Christ. I was reading a, a little story in a book uh, called Victory Over the Darkness. A great story. It's about a man named Derek. Derek was a man in his early 30s. He was enrolled in our missions program at Talbot School of Theology several years ago. I barely knew Derek until he attended a conference where I spoke on the critical importance of understanding our spiritual identity in Christ. The next week, he came to see me and tell me his story. Derek grew up with a father who demanded perfection in everything his son did. Derek was an intelligent, talented guy, but no matter how hard he tried or how well he succeeded, he seemed unable to please his father. 
the man continually pushed his son for better performance. In striving to fulfill his father's expectations, Derek earned an appointment to the United States Naval Academy and qualified for flight school. He achieved what most young men only dream about, becoming a member of the elite corps of Navy flyers. He said, after I completed my obligation to the Navy, I decided that I wanted to please God with my life. But again, I saw God as a perfectionistic heavenly shadow of my earthly father. And I figured the only way I could fulfill his expectations was for me to become a missionary. I'll be honest with you, I enrolled in the missions program at this seminary for the same reason I went to Annapolis, to please a demanding father. Then I attended your conference last Saturday. I had never heard before that I am completely accepted by Father God because I am in Christ. I've always worked so hard to please God by what I do, just as I struggled to please my natural father. I didn't realize that I already please God by who I am in Christ. And now that I don't have to be a missionary to please God, I'm switching my major to practical theology, he said. Um, so Derek studied practical theology for about two years. Then he had an operation trip in Spain. When Derek returned from the trip, he came into my office and said, I'm changing my major again. To missions, right? I responded with a smile. Right, Derek said. But I'm not going into missions now because I have to. I know God already accepts me completely as his child. Now I'm planning to be a missionary because I love him and I want to serve him. And when we come to understand these spiritual truths, it will radically transform the living out of the Christian life, that it will be an experience that flows naturally from the joy and hope that we have in him.